Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, and verses 5 through 10. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. And this morning, this is the word of God. If you've done any traveling at all, the new way, I guess it's not that new anymore, but to book hotels, you used to go to a travel agent. Seriously, you did. Um, and now you just go on your computer and you can look at online reviews of hotels and such, right? Everything is, is uh, reviewed online. Some of you attend university classes. You can rate your professor now. Uh, you can rate your doctor. You can go online and see online reviews of, of uh, medical people. I'm not... Uh, I would like to draw a bit of a distinction between a hotel and a person, though, and it seems that a line has been crossed for many with a new app, a new uh, technological way to, um, to judge. It's called People, P-E-E-P-L-E, -E -E, and it's uh, Canadian individuals who are behind this, thanks be to Canada. And the People app, all it is, is a way for you to judge other people. So I could start a page on Chris Liggett, and I could say, um, some of you are interested in reviews on Chris. And I could say, here's, you know, I give, I give him like three and a half stars or something. It would be totally more than that, Chris, but it's just an example. Um, uh, now, this apparently is launching this week or next week or something, and it is one of the worst things in the world, uh, just to, to judge people. Doctors have said, well, welcome to our world now, by the way. So be careful how you use some of these other tools. Uh, rating people, what what you th and 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 the, of course the people behind it are trying to sell it positively and saying no no it's so you can say nice things okay. There have been times in history in which you would get the sense of how to judge a person based on this concept of sin. Today we're looking at sin and wrongdoing in Christian theology and teaching as we move from Genesis to Nazareth. What is a proper understanding of sin? And don't worry, I won't be able to uh, to tell you the whole uh, the whole big picture on sin. But I want to offer some correctives. 
And it used to be that that's the way that uh, cultures, particularly religious cultures, churches, would judge somebody as good or bad is based on sin. And those, those sins would be obvious, external things. So it would, the giveaways would be in our language, right? Things like, he's far from the Lord right now. What does that mean? Maybe little interest in God, maybe they're out drinking and carousing, or any of the words that you used to use, living in debauchery or something like that. Uh, and there would be a particular group of sins that you would use and you would judge a person. Um, now, that's a very coarse way of putting it, because it wasn't all, you know, mean, but, but there were certain ways. Now, I don't know what the new way with this people app would be. Uh, they talk too much, they're annoying, they smell different, they smell funny, I don't know what it would be. But I would imagine that in most cases it's not, uh, you know, a religious concept of sin. There have been times, um, and perhaps this is less in religious understanding, but there have been times then where you've rarely heard the word sin at all. Some people have asked, both in, in writing and literature and in, uh, in commentary, kind of particularly Christian books, but I don't think it would only be Christian, uh, things like, whatever happened to sin? We used to hear about sin all the time, and we rarely hear about sin anymore. Some people would say, well, to, to hear about sin would be outdated, and it no longer carries the terror that it used to carry if you were judged to be on the wrong side of this type of judgment. I have on the screen that there's a convenient tendency today that I see in our culture. And um, I'm stealing this from, from someone else, but I'll, I'll tell you who later. But I, it really resonated with me. There's a convenient tendency in our culture today to see ourselves not as sinners, but either as victims or as heroes. And so when we, when we write the story of our lives in our minds, we see ourselves either as a hero Right? I can do great things. I've got all these abilities. I can change the world. I kind of know how to do things better than those people who are doing them. You know, I know that a lot of you, like politically, you can think, like, well, okay, we've got these number of people to vote for, but, you know, I really know. Uh, and so that's the hero kind of mentality, that, that you live with a hero mentality. Another default mentality is a victim mentality. I have been wronged in this life, and it may or may not be true. Most often it's at least partially true, and sometimes it's severely so. But I, I take on a victim uh, kind of identity, and I then begin to say, well, I've made some mistakes in my life, but... And then you begin to hear, really the mistakes are because I've been victimized in, in some way. These can be go-to identities in our culture. And you have to ask yourself, how do you do this? I, I would say, I mean, it's pretty rare. I would say in, in, in a room like this, every one of us does both of these things. We cast ourselves as a hero in particular ways, and at times we cast ourselves as a victim. Somehow, we have to come to terms with the concept, with the concept that we can be the ones who have done wrong. You hear me? We have to come to terms with the concept that we are the ones who have done wrong. We can pray, forgive me for the things that I have done and for the things that I have left undone. And the Christian term for this kind of concept is sin. And when I was growing up, the definition of sin I was given in my Baptist church growing up before I made the switch to the Brethren Church, and I didn't know what Brethren meant, but it was a good church, Sutherland. Still is. Amen. 
But the definition in both places that I was given, and in some ways it's accurate, is that sin means you have missed the mark. You heard that one? You remember that one? There's a bullseye and you didn't make it. We are all sinners. The implication being, you need to be perfect. God is perfect. No one can be perfect, so everybody's a sinner. But always before me, or often, and this was part of my understanding growing up, that I would say needed to be corrected. But there weren't too many people offering a corrective. No disrespect to the ones who uh, were good mentors and guides for me. But I picked up, maybe it's in my own misunderstanding, I picked up that in some ways in Christian teaching, what seemed to be taught to me was that sin is ultimate. Right? Sin is the problem and the thing that we are dealing with. And so, effectively, my life, my faith, my struggle, whatever, is to get the sin thing right. But sin was the big news. Even when I heard about Jesus coming, it was that Jesus died on a cross to what? Save me from my sins. Do you see how that puts sin as the ultimate thing? It wasn't until I grew in my faith and in some of my reading that I came to realize that that's an improper understanding of sin. Sin is not ultimate in Christian faith. It is, if you want a proper word for it, is pen, it's penultimate. It's, 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 next, it's, it's not the ultimate thing. The love of Jesus Christ is the ultimate thing. The defining matter and the defining measure. Here's how you can test it in your thinking. If we had never sinned, no Jesus? Jesus Christ is the first and the last. This Christian understanding and teaching. And the necessary dynamic is here, even in the Old Testament which isn't explicitly uh, Christian in the way that we would understand it. This is also a Jewish document. People maintain uh, the Old Testament who don't subscribe to that Jesus is the Messiah. But when we listen properly, this would be in our Christian faith and teaching, we can see the Christian teaching of sin even here. The necessary dynamic and the contrast offered in this text and the evidence of trusting in Jesus Christ is life, not simply measurement of good and bad. You understand? Do you see the picture that's offered here? You have a dried up shrub or a flourishing tree, and we lived, we've just lived through a summer of relative drought here in the rainforest. Even in a year of drought, there's no worry, there's no anxiety, there's flourishing, there's life. And Christian understanding is that that life is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. But then you have this question in the text. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? I think I have a next, another quote here as well. God does not ask of us what, that we should be something different, but simply that we should be who we are, each of us a person loved by God. But the truth is that we are too proud to be loved by God. We want to build our identity on something else. Now, even the ways in which you judge one another, and we'll do that app thing in this church, we'll start that next week. We would make the news. Do you want to make the news? Just, we'll make the news. We'll say there's a church that's actually judging one another, and they've got an app for that. Um, but the way in which you judge one another often in this church, it, it's because we're caught in this culture is money, career, vocation, 
success, right? This person's made it, this person hasn't. That's even present here. Too proud to simply be the one loved by God and find not only our identity in that, but the identity of the person with whom we're speaking. This week we talk about the nature of sin and wrongdoing, and next week we'll look at how bad sin can get. It's perfect because it's the week before Halloween, and it can get really bad. Um, how bad sin can get as we live in a toxic culture. I had a slide there just a few minutes ago that looked at the poet that said the poetry of the text, the poetic language. One of the benefits of a text like this is that it's easy to read. This is, this is written this way so that you would remember it. And I, this is a bit of a soapbox for me, but for those who struggle with poetry, that means you struggle with Scripture because much of Scripture is poetry, poetic language that is evocative. It brings out meaning to you. It's not simply um, you know, a, a directions guide. It's not a, a technical manual. It's poetry. And you can hear the poetry in this text. Verses 5 and 6 describe a person who is, in this language, cursed. The, the one who trusts in humanity. The one who draws strength from flesh. And whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They won't see prosperity. And then, and then images like this. They'll dwell in parched places in a salt land where no one lives. Verses 7 and 8 offer a poetic contrast to the person who is blessed a person who is flourishing, a person who is living not driven by fear, no worries in a year of drought. This is contemporary language. Uh, How contemporary is it that you can trust in people or you can trust in God? And how present is this concept of sin in our world today? It's so present that that's one of the reasons the word sin has been lost is because it just is now human behavior. We have a, a great example, and good uh, Christian teachers of mine have, have said, if you're going to talk about sin from the front, talk about your own sin. Um, and, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about somebody else's sin right now. But it's, it's big enough that it's institutional so we can keep you know, from particular people. Uh, some of you read in the last few weeks the actions of, um, well, it's been happening over years, but it came out in the last few weeks, the, the uh, actions of Volkswagen one of the biggest car manufacturers in the world. You know what they did, right? Those who don't know, what they did is they spent a ton of money designing software for their cars that cheated on every emissions test. In in all their vehicles. Is this surprising to you? All their diesel vehicles. Is this, thank you very much. There's a corrector back there. Thank you, Matt. Um, All their diesel vehicles. Is this surprising to you? When you, when you read it, do you think, well, they're probably all doing that? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure or desperately sick. Who can understand it? In the time in which this text was written, there were no Volkswagen, diesel, or otherwise. But it's still present. This particular time, and we won't go into the biblical... Um, uh, history in, in this sermon, but it's definitely worth doing. The, the story of Jeremiah is one that is compelling and painful and sad and fantastic and evocative. And I mean, Jeremiah says things like, uh, if, "If only my head were a fountain, if only my head were a fountain, I would cry tears all all day and all night for my people who've turned away from God and are now experiencing this pain." 
But basically what's happening in this text is that there's an indictment set up. Uh, And you can see it before and after this text. God is saying to this people, to Judah, you have turned away from me. And it's almost like a legal case. Now there's an indictment, and here's what will happen. A sentence will be declared. And the sentence is that the disobedience ends, and this is a word for them, but it's also a word for you. Disobedience ends in displacement. You are not in the place you are supposed to be. You are supposed to be flourishing. You are supposed to be alive. You are supposed to feel alive. But you have been displaced. And there is in this text and in this book the directive to look at your own action and behavior and thought as contributing to that displacement. The sin in this case, and often when you're reading the Old Testament, the sin can be summed up in two things, major categories, idolatry and failure to love other people. Again, pretty contemporary. You're worshiping false gods, you're devoting your life to following things that aren't eternal, that aren't divine, that aren't God. I mean, we can go through the list right now for how we do that. You're worshiping false gods, and you're not loving other people. And because of this disobedience, there will be displacement. My contention, and this is a turning for the sermon right now, it's a quick turn, but it's an important one in my mind. My contention is that we have tried to understand sin without Jesus. We've tried to understand sin without Jesus. So many of you, and you may have been taught in a church growing up, have an understanding of sin that's over here, right? Good things, that's not sin. Bad things, that's sin. But Jesus exists in this kind of thinking to deal with the sin, right? Jesus died to save you from your sins. But you don't really need Jesus to understand what sin is. Now, I I think as a Christian that that's wrong. Okay? In Christian teaching, you can't understand sin without looking at Jesus Christ. I'll go through the words of that song, That Kind of Love, at the end of the sermon, and you'll, you'll begin to see a little bit deeper how uh, looking to Jesus Christ helps you to understand what sin is. We can't understand love or holiness without Jesus. Are you okay with that? Okay. But I'm saying you can't really understand sin and wrongdoing without Jesus Christ. And we've attempted to do that. We've attempted basically to go with this list and then bring Jesus in as the one who helps deal with our sin. It's not good Christian understanding, and let me say this as well, the world is uninterested in it because it's uninteresting. It's making sin ultimate and Jesus secondary. makes Jesus a means to an end, which is a brutality to the Christian faith. Or Jesus becomes, and again, this isn't necessarily a bad thing here, Jesus becomes an example merely, someone who was sinless. Jesus didn't save me because he was sinless, he saved me because he loved me. And so we, we again, distort our view of Jesus Christ in saying, well, he didn't sin. It's true he didn't sin. The distortion isn't that. The distortion is that therefore that's, you know, I can, I can garner my Christian faith from that. I should just try not to sin. That's not what the Christian faith is saying. The Christian faith is saying trying not to sin isn't enough. You must trust in Jesus Christ. 
That's what it means to understand sin from a Christological perspective. And the echoes are all through the Old Testament. All these signs of what is coming. God's saying in the prophets, like Jeremiah and other places, Ezekiel particularly, I will give you a new heart. You will seek me. You will find me. And uh, Sorry, uh, Heather read it from Jeremiah. These words written to people heading into 70 years in exile. I'm going to prosper you and give you a future. Well, not an immediate future, clearly. They were heading into real difficulty. But the promise was, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. You'll know me. These echoes are all through the Old Testament. The Christian concept should be this. Now, this is a very important statement, and I hope you take it up in your life. I didn't write it. The knowledge of Jesus Christ forces us and frees us to a knowledge of sin. But do you see how you start with Jesus? The knowledge of Jesus Christ forces us. That means that when I look at Jesus Christ and I measure my heart by the love of Jesus, I can barely stand. I would fall on my knees right away. Knowing every heart is measured by that kind of love. It forces me to look at myself and my life. But it also, and this is... This is just as important. It also frees me to look at myself and my life. Frees me to a knowledge of sin. If you're trying to understand sin apart from Jesus, you are, you are taking up a slightly less, at least slightly less than Christian approach. Trying to understand it merely by code or rules or law, acceptable or unacceptable practices... I want to outline uh, how we have thought of sin. Two categories of understanding sin, and you learn some, you, you hear some, or learn some good big words this morning. Um, most sin it fits in the number one form, our, our view of sin. And what that means is, um, at, at Promethean here means the, the myth, right? Prometheus stealing the lightning from the gods, stealing what the gods should have. And so this is a heroic form of sin. It would be the sin of me if I were right now to take this microphone and smash the piano. It's not particularly heroic, right? But it's an active sin. It's like it's why some people can feel compelled to break things, to destroy things. Take charge of something that isn't theirs to take charge of. Stealing lightning from the gods. That's what most people think that sin is. Doing something bad, right? Hurting someone else, right? Going up and kicking you in the shins just because I felt like it. This is sin as heroic, and there's a somber beauty to it. It's trying to be God. Now, of course, in, in our lives now, this means thinking that we can take charge of ourselves and of other people. This is sin marked by pride, a kind of violence against one another, a willingness to hurt and to hate, competition, victory, triumph, Arrogance, all within this Promethean concept of sin. And it's the way th most people think of sin. What I'm saying this morning, and I'm building on some favorite theologians of mine, is that that's actually not the most problematic form of sin today. The most problematic form of sin today in your life is the second kind. And that is an unheroic type of sin that can be marked by a slothfulness. Not being who we are meant to be thinking that your life is defined by comfort, 
by the gathering up of experiences, promoting yourself as gathering up experiences. Here's me here, here's me here, here's me here. That doesn't feel slothful to you, does it? But what it means is that we are taking up an identity other than the one given to us by God. This sin is, and there's three words that fit into it here, this sin is ordinary, trivial, and mediocre. It's actually the more Christian way of understanding sin, or starting to understand sin. It's not to throw out the concept of the, of the heroic type of sin, but that more often you're going to be caught in sins that are just slothful. Jesus has come that we might have life and have it to the full, and we are experiencing and accepting a life far less than that. A life defined not by the high call of God, but by the demands of culture and the things that you've accepted as a good life. One, the first form of of sin here is in need of, you would say, humiliation. You think too highly of yourself in these heroic sins. The second form of sin is in need of exaltation. You've forgotten who you are in Christ. In one form of sin, the self shines. Look at me. And I judge the world primarily by what I feel. So we said last week, there's a wonderful possibility that this might be a good day, even if it's not a good day for you. But heroic sin judges the world always by what I feel. I'm at the center. But the other is the desire not to be illuminated, that you have accepted a life far less than the life that God has for you. You're in need of illumination. Now the text can ask, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the text will answer, it's a beautiful answer, and quick. Who can understand it? God can. He searches out the heart and tests its hidden depths. There's another biological metaphor in the original language here. The heart in, in this biblical writing was understood more as what we would conceive of as the mind. But it's not only our Western concept of mind, kind of intelligence and thinking, because it is that center of your being as well. But the center of your being in this understanding was, you know, was the mind. So the translation here goes to heart, because that's how we think of it. But, but basically what it's saying is the way in which you perceive things, the way in which you see the world, the, the center from which you come to all your conclusions, it's desperately off. But there's another uh, biological metaphor in the words hidden depths. That's a word in the original language that goes to something like our kidneys. It's based, and that's to do with our emotions back in this, in this biblical writing. So there is the mind and there is the emotions. And, and the question is put before, before all of us and all of history. Who can understand this about humanity? And the answer is, is given, God can. God knows. God knows the human heart and human emotions even as we don't. And so the question comes up, and I'll put it before you now, so great the day before an election, can people be trusted? What's the answer? I mean, in human terms, we would say, well, no, they can't be trusted. They'll rig the car to, to pass the test even when they know it's wrong. 
However, the Christian call is to see as Christ does and to love as Christ does. What it means is that my interaction with you is based, my interaction with you is based in my trust in God. I'm not trying to downplay who you are in front of me, but I'm trying to say on a human level, one of the answers I would give, can I trust you? No. But I trust in God. Can I love you? Yes, I can. Allowing ourselves to be who we are, loved by God, and seeing the other as someone who is loved by God. And the fullness of that life in Christian teaching is seen in Christ. The image in the Jeremiah text that we're reading this morning is a flourishing tree. In Jesus Christ, you will become this flourishing tree, life. And when you're talking to somebody, you'll know that life. And when somebody lets you down, even though it might be painful, even though it might be painful, you'll know that life. Gregory Boyd, who has a book called um, Repenting of Religion, he was a Christian minister in the United States who um, basically was in one of these churches that was that was a little more um, black and white in its, its understanding and, and, and it, like, what we ha- they would have Veterans Day, I guess, there, and they would have like uh, lots of American flags and different things like that. And one Sunday he decided to pray, and he said, "No more. This is too much America." And uh, half the church left, and uh, and he started to rebuild rebuild the church. This is in I can't remember exactly where it is, but he, from his experience, he wrote a book called "Repenting of Religion," and he used in in that book an example of what he would call a psychotic husband. And he said, if you were a spouse, in this case, you cast yourself as a wife, and you're married to a husband who follows all the rules perfectly, all the rules perfectly, but doesn't love you, there's a psychosis there. That person becomes a terror. He's doing so in the book, and his book's much, much more to the book, but he's saying, ultimately, our faith in Christian understanding is our faith is in Jesus Christ, not in getting all the rules right. The images in Jeremiah are a dried-up shrub with no roots. This is what it means to trust in humanity or this watered tree, trusting in God, and for us as Christians, trusting in Jesus Christ. That we cannot look simply that someone is a good person or a bad person. We've been trying that for centuries, years and years, and the results are in. In the end, the truth is that Christian faith will teach. I'm probably behind here. Oh, not bad. That Christian faith will teach that we can't understand goodness or badness or right or wrong or sin or wrongdoing apart from Christ. And the truth is that many times in religious circles, Christian religious circles, we do just that. When we do that, we cause terrible damage. We need to own up to that at times in our history. When we've, we've, we've acted in an incredibly unchrist-like way, trying to tell other people about their sin. It's nonsense. There's nothing in it. The knowledge of Jesus Christ forces us and frees us to a knowledge of sin. And that can lead to repentance. When you see Jesus Christ, 
in fullness. Even a glimpse of that fullness. I'm not worried about whether you'll repent or not. (laughs) If you truly see. So the lyrics of the song, um, I want to read them out for you as we close. And I want to use this as a spiritual exercise. I want you to put your life up against this kind of love of Jesus Christ. And then begin to see if you would cast yourself as sinner or not. Or whether you'd point to somebody else as the one who has it wrong. Listen to what this love of Christ is like. Can't be bought or sold or faked, that kind of love. It always gives itself away, that kind of love. It's wiser than the wisest sage. Its innocence makes me ashamed till I'm not sure that I can take that kind of love. Pride and hatred cannot stand that kind of love. Greater love hath no man than that kind of love. It won't be kept unto itself. It spreads its charms. It casts its spell till no one's safe this side of hell from that kind of love. Words are a bit small for me there. Love rejected and ignored, held in chains behind closed doors, stuff of legend and of song, but deep down everybody longs for that kind of love. Some people never know that kind of love, but it only takes a child to show that kind of love. Widows smile and strong men weep and little ones play at its feet. The deaf can hear and the blind can see that kind of love. Love triumphant, love on fire, love that humbles and inspires. Love that does not hesitate with no conditions, no restraints, that kind of love. Now here's the measurement. So how could anyone deny that kind of love, knowing every heart is measured by that kind of love? Even stars fall from the sky, everything, everything will fall in time, except the things that cannot die, that kind of love. And then a blessing. Oh, may you be remembered by that kind of love. We do have repenting to do as Christians. We are sinners. We're both heroic sinners, though I think many of you are better slothful sinners than heroic. But we do have repenting to do. But one of the things we have to repent to over and over again in religious circles, Christian religious circles, is that we've tried to understand sin without Jesus Christ. Be cautious of this. Listen for it. And when you hear it for somebody else, attack them. I'm kidding, don't but you will hear it from other people. And when you hear somebody else talking about sin as if they can understand it apart from Jesus, pray, Dear Heavenly Father, let me see you, Lord Jesus Christ, and let me know that every heart, my heart included, is measured by your love. I'm a sinner, but I trust in you that I could live and flourish and even be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with us as we uh, we make this declaration together that Jesus Christ, 
is God's righteousness revealed to us. Jesus, God's righteousness revealed. The Son of Man, the Son of God, His kingdom come. Jesus, a sacrifice. Now justified His kingdom comes And His kingdom will know no end And its glory shall know no bounds For the majesty and power Of His kingdom King has come, and this kingdom's reign, and this kingdom's rule, and this kingdom's power and authority. Jesus, God's righteousness expression of God's love, the grace of God, the word of God revealed to us, Jesus, that's holiness Justified, His kingdom comes, and His kingdom will know no end, and its glory shall know no bounds. For the majesty and power of this kingdom's King has come. Kingdom's reign and this kingdom's rule and this kingdom's power and authority. Jesus, God's righteousness revealed.